Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> well, hello there, and welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I'm your shopkeeper, Chris Baker. So glad you've stopped by to take a look around, and I think you deserve something special. Let's take this down off the shelf. It's a curious relic, a golden chalice, one maybe used in ceremonies such as communion for centuries upon centuries. And if you look closely, it is quite ornate, jewel-encrusted, fine gold plate. And if you look on the inside, is that is that wine stains or or could that be blood? That really is the question we have posed before us, and that is our entry into the world of Mike Flanagan's Netflix limited series, Midnight Mass. So let's fire up the mutoscope and sink our teeth into the horrors that await. Now, Midnight Mass was released to Netflix on September 24th and has really kind of steamrolled since then a snowball effect of people just watching it over and over again more and more people checking this limited series out and with with good cause because it is a mike flanagan led film or, or limited series if you will and for me and my money uh mike flanagan over the past 10 or so years has really made a name in the world of horror, uh, he's kind of cemented his place as one of the one of the greats when it comes to creating and directing horror, and uh, and I've been a huge fan. Of course, uh, I think probably the first movie I saw of his was Oculus. Uh, Before I Wake, uh, Gerald's Game, another Netflix, uh, of course, Doctor Sleep, one of his more recent uh, theatrical uh, adaptations. Of course, he's been responsible for the, the Haunting series on Netflix, The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Blind Manor. Can't wait for, for more to come from him uh, in, in that uh, genre, but uh, really, like I said, really has made a name for himself as one of the best when it comes to creating, uh, creating worlds, creating interesting characters, creating characters you care about, and placing them in the middle of some of the most horrific uh, scenarios. And uh, that's to me that is uh, that is a recipe. For horror perfection, it's very King-like. Uh, you know, I, I reference King a lot on here. I'm a huge fan of King. Uh, King is a great influence of mine in the world of horror, and you really can't. I mean, he's he's the king of horror for a reason, and you you can't not make some of those uh, associations when it comes to quality horror. And uh, you know, that's what King does best. He does great character development, uh, great world building. He creates real characters, characters that you can uh, empathize with. Maybe they, maybe they might be a little rough around the edges, but you still, uh, you connect with them. And I think that is probably, that's one of my favorite things about King. And I think that's one of Mike Flanagan's uh, strong suits. Uh, when it comes to 
the movies and uh, the series that he's created. So I was so excited to see that Midnight Mass was coming out on Netflix. I remember when the teasers hit and they had that, that haunting teaser where you caught little snippets of what the story might be about, but they really didn't get into too much detail it was just very looked like it was going to be very atmospheric it looked like it was going to be very weird and bizarre and they had that keen song somewhere uh only we know playing but like in snippets and uh, it was just so haunting that it it hooked me and it reeled me in uh, to to play off the fishing theme of this small town, uh, this small island town that we're introduced to, Crockett Island, which I, I was I was not very certain of where Crockett Island was located. For the most part, I was thinking off the coast of Maine, Massachusetts. Kind of had that feel, but nobody had any uh, Maine or, or Boston accents. But uh, to find out, it is off the coast of Washington. This island uh, population, I believe it says, of 127 people. It's a small island, small town. And, and you get all the things that come with that. Of course, it's a island, so it's a, it's a fishing town, fishing, crabbing. That is the, the main uh, way people make their living there. And, of course, they, they kind of go into uh, events of the past that have limited that. And, and they really set up this as a dying town. And, you know, the people are still holding on, but they, they're holding on with very little hope. And, you know, they're... they're community of great faith of catholic faith and and this is you know typical small town usa small town closeness small town sense of community uh but also has that small town bias and that small town bigotry and that small town fear of strangers it it just really uh flanagan sets up this town especially in some of the shots as we're we're going through the opening credits and and kind of introducing us to this island uh just a lot of shots from high above and and far out really set up the isolation uh and the diminishing nature of this of this island town and and the fact that it's dying i mean throughout the whole whole thing you you get this sense of death and decay and rot all the houses look weather beaten and old uh you know they they just uh the, the townspeople look weather beaten and old and uh it, it's uh it, we'll kind of get into it later speaking of the old aspect of it but uh one thing i noticed right away is he had a lot of uh actors playing people older than they really are a lot of age effect makeup and uh, there's a couple in particular that i was like wow they couldn't find a senior actor to to fill this role but it all made sense later on but it was something that uh i thought well maybe it's just playing into the the atmosphere and it's playing into the fact that this community is dying and uh, we're introduced to crockett island in this way and of course uh, lovingly and affectionately and sometimes mockingly they they call themselves the crock pot because uh for, for the fact that it is a, a small town a small island uh, it is a very diverse community 
uh, surprisingly so, because you don't usually get uh, terribly diverse communities when when you're talking about small town USA. I mean, I grew up in a small town, and it was it was as white bread as as you can get. Now, now that uh, much time has passed since my growing up there, uh, it's a little more uh, diverse culturally, but uh, but you don't often get that. Uh, but it is nice to see that in, in these settings because especially today, you know, uh, things are becoming more diverse. So it was great to see that represented uh, without feeling like uh, they're just going overboard to have representation in the cast. Not that that's a bad thing, but sometimes it can come across and feel a little forced. And, and then we start meeting the characters. And I'm going to try not to be too spoilery with this. Uh, I know in the past I've been terribly spoilery. I'm going to try to go through this, talk about the characters, talk about the themes. Uh, be careful for spoilers, but I'm going to go out of my way to try not to spoil anything. And then towards the end, uh, as I'm getting ready to wrap things up, I am going to get into some spoiler territory for anyone who has watched this and does want to, to hear uh, my take on, on some of the more spoiler aspects, but I will forewarn you. But we, we get introduced to the people of Crockett, and that really is, I mean, the, the town in itself, I know it seems a, a little cliche, is a bit of a character, uh, and, and then we get to meet the characters within that character. The, the first character we really get introduced to, and I, I don't even believe it's it's on Crockett Island, we get uh, to meet one of our main protagonists, Riley Flynn, play, played by Zach Guilford. Uh, you know, he's, he does, he's in the finances that we find out later and startups and, uh, and, th and that sort of thing. Uh, but we, we meet him at the scene of a, a DUI accident. He's been... Uh, in this DUI accident where he kills uh, a young lady and he sees this, this young lady on the ground with glass all in her and they're doing CPR and, you know, he gets uh, a couple scratches and is, is just fine. And, and you see that this girl dies right there and, you know, he's sitting there saying a prayer, you know, his, his car, you show, they really, they start in on his car and the, the Jesus fish uh, on the back of it. He was a man of faith and he's sitting there praying and the uh, EMT attending to him uh, essentially says, uh, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, uh, why does he let, why does, you know, ask God why uh, he let, takes a young girl and leaves the asshole that killed her without a with just a scratch that sort of thing and you could tell that just that comment to him changes him right there um of course he gets sent to jail and spends four years in prison and you see right off the bat he's haunted by this uh this murder you know he's killed this girl not not intentionally uh but you know, that's the nature of drunk driving accidents. Nobody goes out setting out to kill anyone, but but they do. They do kill people. Um, I lost a best friend. Best friend I ever had. Childhood best friend. We had the childhood of 80s uh, kid adventure movies. 
and uh, he was he's killed in a drunk driving accident, and that is something I'm not going to get into here. But uh, but that's the kind of things that happen, and he is haunted by images of this girl that he killed. You know, for his first night in jail, he's laying there and he sees uh, the image of this girl. She's she's like she was when she was lying there having CPR. She's she's dead, and she has you know, all the dirt and muss of being in an accident. And the it was really kind of a cool effect. And they show it in the trailer. I didn't get it in the trailer. I got it after I saw it. But you see shards of glass uh, sticking out of her. Uh, and you don't see the light of the emergency vehicles anywhere else on her except through the reflections of the uh, reflection on those shards of glass. And it was a really cool and creepy and haunting effect and throughout the at least the first third of this movie i believe uh he's haunted by this vision when he sleep, he tries to sleep and uh and he's a very haunted character riley flynn is a, a very haunted character he's you know he's struggling uh with the alcoholism uh, I mean, honestly, he doesn't seem like it's it's that's that big of a struggle with him in the movie. Uh, I think he struggles more with the the guilt, and he's just a very guilt ridden, melancholy character that uh, I don't think he feels he deserves happiness because of what he does. Um, and and it's just uh, a character you really, I mean, you can't you know you can't let him off the hook for what he did. But he's a character, you, you tell he feels genuine remorse. And you begin to empathize with him. And he's coming home to Crockett Island after he gets out of jail. Uh, coming home to his family, his his mother and father, Annie and Ed Flynn, played by uh, Kristen Lehman uh, and Henry Thomas. And I'll talk about Henry Thomas's performance later, but I just always love seeing him show up in things. And he's shown up in a lot of Mike Flanagan stuff uh, here over the past several years. But, uh, but you know, Annie Flynn is the, the the loving, doting mother, the very forgiving mother, while, while Ed Flynn is... He's a fisherman. He's, you know, kind of the strong, silent type. And there's a... Uh, it, you you think it is shame for what Riley's done, and I think in some aspects it is, and shame and blame. But uh, we find out later in a really poignant scene uh, that it may be even more so shame in his self uh, for not being the father he wanted to be to Riley. And again, we'll kind of we'll kind of touch on that later, but. Uh, but two excellent actors in those roles. And, of course, there's a, a, another uh, character, Warren Flynn, uh, played by Igby Rigney. And uh, he's, he's Riley's younger brother. And he's, he's part of a group of, uh, of local kids that, uh, again, we'll, we'll kind of touch on that a little bit later. But uh, that's, the, that's the main family that we kind of meet as we we come into Crockett Island. And, of course, there's a lot of other uh, characters uh, that we're going to meet along the way. Aaron Green, played by uh, Kate Siegel, uh, Mike Flanagan's wife, and uh, uh, another... You know, Mike Flanagan's one of those uh, directors and screenwriters that he likes to use a lot of the same actors. Uh, his wife, Kate Siegel, 
like I said earlier, Henry Thomas shows up in a lot of his stuff. Uh, some of the actors we're going to f- talk about a little later have shown up in in other uh, Mike Flanagan vehicles. So uh, it's it's nice to see uh, some of these familiar faces. And there's a, an interesting quote um, I read from Mike Flanagan about how you know he uses all these different uh, actors in in all of his movies. Uh, and he kind of talked about how he kind of just wants it all to blend together at the end of the day when it's all said and done. He wants all these movies to kind of blend together in a big rubber band ball and just keep people guessing as to what <laughs> what was the reason behind it. But uh, very interesting uh, character. She's one of the main characters. She's a school teacher. She's pregnant. Uh, we find out a lot about her abusive mom and then her abusive. I, I don't know if they ever. Uh, I can't remember if it's a husband or boyfriend, but the father of the child she's carrying, uh, she gets into this relationship, which turns out abusive as well. And she's dealing with that and, uh, you know, dealing with the torment of abusive relationships and with the, you know, the walls up uh, as, as people who have been in abusive relationships do. And, uh, and then she deals with some other things as, as the show, uh, as the series moves on, that uh, really kind of uh, cause her and Riley. I mean, he's uh, she's kind of Riley's like a high school sweetheart, his high school flame, and uh, so they have a connection there. Uh, but they something happens later on that really kind of connects those two even more, and just brings their relationship deeper. And uh, again, we'll kind of touch on that a little bit later, but. Uh, just want to touch on uh, some of the some of the other characters in this that kind of round out the cast. Of course, there's Bev Keen, played by Samantha Sloyan, uh, another actress who's been in some of Mike Flanagan's uh, other movies. Of course, she was in Hush with uh, Kate Siegel, and uh, and she just plays. Uh, it, it's so funny to watch her in other things and, and to see her as a real person, like doing interviews and stuff like that. And everybody I've heard talk about her, uh, just she's such a nice person. But Bev Keen, the character she plays, is such a, a she's zealous and judgmental and holier than thou. Uh, very two faced, kind of one of those people that is a backhanded complimenter. Any compliment you get from them is going to be uh, come across as slightly sarcastic and it's going to be uh, like you feel the jab of the knife in your back after it's said and done. And she plays a a big part, a big antagonistic role in this. I've seen some articles where it talks about her maybe maybe the, the, the big bad guy in this. I don't think she is. Um... I, I think she is one of those people that uh, I, I think they, I don't even think it's that they mean well. They just feel that they're right in their convictions and their convictions, uh, you know, because they, they think they're right in their convictions. That gives them carte blanche to to do and act however they want to other people. And that, you know, I guess you could say that is a bad person, a bad guy. But there's things that happen in the end that uh, I, I think a, a lot of people who are in uh, antagonistic roles in, in this realize the error of their ways. 
but uh, she is a, a key character in all of this. Uh, there's also a Sheriff Hassan, played by Rahul Kohli. Again, he was in what well, was at the Haunting of Bly Manor. Uh, loved his role there. Loved his role here. Uh, he plays a sheriff with a past and uh, very guarded to to the town because you know he he plays a, a Muslim in a predominantly Catholic community and and he you know there's a there's a great scene where he kind of describes what he went through he used to be a, a detective and he rose up through the ranks and and because of, of 911 uh, you know he wanted to be a part of of fighting terror and then all of a sudden the people that were his partners uh, all kind of turned on him and thought you know he was he was a mole and and it just it, how quickly uh, people can turn from looking at someone as a, an ally and then all of a sudden, well, maybe maybe they're not who I think they are and how things can turn very racist. But I, I liked uh, one of the things that Rahul uh, Kohli said in a recent interview is that you've got this quintessential American hero in cinema, the sheriff, John Wayne. He says you've got America's greatest villain post 9-11, the bearded brown man, uh, the Muslim. And he says, I love how confusing the image is. And uh, I, I don't know about confusing, but it made for a very interesting setup when you have, you know, like I said, this Catholic community. You have this Muslim uh, sheriff who's, you know, he's just he just wants to keep the peace in this quiet little town. And he gets a lot of backlash from people like the Bev Keen character who, uh, you know, as much as she touts her Christian virtues, uh, she also harbors a, a quite a bit of racism in her heart and, uh, and the hypocrisy there. And, and, and even Sheriff Hassan, uh, a little bit of hypocrisy within him, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, but, uh, a very interesting character, uh, well-played character, there's also Dr. Sarah Gunning, played by Annabeth Gish. She's the town doctor. Uh, kind of an interesting scene that uh, I, I don't want to talk about right now, but we'll, we'll get to with her character. And it can really speaks volumes to uh, things. It's, it's one of those where you see something, you think it's one thing, and then with one little key piece of information, it changes what you thought it was completely, but uh, Mildred Gunning plays, uh, or is her mother, uh, Sarah Gunning's mother in this, played by Alex Esso. Um, she's got dementia, and she also has secrets that we find out uh, are very instrumental, in uh, especially towards the end of this story. But uh, other great characters, Wade and Dolly Scarborough, played by Michael Truco. Again, uh, another veteran of Mike Flanagan uh, movies uh, and, and TV series. Uh, Dolly is played by Crystal uh, Ballant. Uh, they're the mayor and his wife. They're the parents of Lisa. Um, and Lisa is a, is a big character played by Anna Ross Seymour. Uh, she's a paraplegic. Uh, she lost the use of her legs due to a gun injury. Uh from a character we're going to find out here in, in just a little bit. But uh, she, again, is a, a, a key character um, as far as pushing the story forward. Um, she also has a really big scene. And it really speaks a lot to forgiveness. Um, 
that I like I said I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little more about the story later just kind of want to talk about the the characters and set the scene set who you're gonna be uh, hearing about uh, of course there's Sturge played by um, Matt Bidel. Uh he's the town handyman uh, again uh, a character that really doesn't seem of much consequence to begin with but but we're gonna find out they're gonna be more of a key player um, the kids of town, uh, of course, we already talked about Warren Flynn, played by Igby uh, Rigney, uh, Riley's brother. There's uh, Ochre. Uh, he's an altar boy with Warren at the local church. There's Ali. He's the Sheriff Hassan's son, played by Rahu Abur. Um, and then we get to Joe Colley, which uh, is a, a, not a not a key character, uh, but kind of a linchpin character. A lot of story happens because of Joe Colley and his action. He's the the town drunk, uh, played by Robert Longstreet, expertly played by Robert Longstreet. Uh, I there there is a couple scenes uh, that just just blow you away uh, with this character Joe Colley that Robert Longstreet is just acting his heart out and putting on a performance like like you've never seen uh it, it's just some really heart-wrenching stuff and then last but not least uh of our major characters we have father paul hill uh played by hamish link later and folks this guy really in in a cast that is just superb I mean, everybody brought it in this. You know, I talked about this on our last episode with the cast of American Horror Story, uh, double feature Red Tide, uh, being spectacular. This cast was just as good, if not better. Uh, they really brought it, and everybody came loaded for bear. And Hamish Linkletter, uh, he was no exception. Uh, I was not really familiar with him. My wife is more familiar with him, but she watches more drama and comedy and dramedies and that sort of thing. And um, and he's done more stuff like that. I don't know as if he's done much horror, but uh, but he just brought a uh, an unearthly quality uh, to this character of of Paul Hill, who's a, a replacement priest. Uh, again, he's got secrets. And uh, we see him come into town with this big steamer trunk, and he gets it to the um, the little uh, parsonage, and he bangs on it, and something inside bangs back. Now, I, I suppose I should set up a, a little bit more. He is a replacement priest, temporary replacement priest, because the uh, the town's priest, eighty-some-year-old uh, man. Uh, suffering from uh, probably the early stages of dementia or Alzheimer's, something like that. Uh, Monsignor Pruitt has uh, the the town decided, uh, I can't remember if it was for his birthday or, or something like that, but they put money together to send him on a, a pilgrimage to walk in the footsteps of Jesus in the Holy Land. And uh, they send him off, and he's apparently come back um ill and the diocese sends father paul to 
to Crockett Island to act as the interim priest for for their church. And that really kind of sets up. That's that has set the table for for what we're going to experience on this uh, on this island and in this in this limited series. Now, one of the cool things I, I really dug about um, this limited series was it's seven episodes, and each episode, uh, I mean, it's got a very religious theme to it. Um, if that triggers you, or if you're sensitive to faith, um, I don't know if this show is going to be the one for you, or, or maybe it is. Maybe it is to open your eyes to, you know, things that maybe you might not agree with or might not understand. But at any rate, there is a lot of talk about faith and Christian faith, and especially uh, as it pertains to within the Catholic Church. And so there's a, a lot of that. One of the things I thought was really cool about this is that each episode uh, references a book of the Bible, which I thought was really kind of cool. We'll we'll get into the individual episodes uh, here in a little bit, but uh, I, I thought that was kind of cool, and and not so much that they referenced books of the Bible, but each book uh, the name has another meaning, and that meaning pertains to how the particular episodes play out. And again, I'm going to get to that quickly. But uh, before that, I do want to talk about, uh, you know, we've set up this town. We've set up these characters. What really is the conflict here? Um, You've got some things that are set in motion that really make all of this happen here at Crockett Island. Of course, you've got Joe Cawley shooting uh, Lisa Scarborough in the back and paralyzing her you've got aaron who leaves her abusive mother and returns after dealing with an abusive husband you've got monsignor pruitt who i said like i said has gone on this pilgrim pilgrimage to the holy land uh, returns ill needs his replacement which enters father paul hill and riley kills a girl in a dui accident he leaves the island he wants to get out of there but he kills a girl in a DUI accident, spent four years of jail, and then has to return home. Erin uh, was the same way. She wanted to get away from that island, to get away from her, her abusive mother. And she ends up getting into a relationship with an abusive husband and ends up returning. Um, all these things put into play the things that happen in this in this series and it, it's it kind of one of the underlying themes of this i think is free will versus fate um riley constantly has this dream when he's not um seeing images of this girl he killed uh he's having this dream where he's out on the water on this rowboat and he just watches the sun rise and he doesn't know what it means and he thinks it's you know, a representation of him not feeling like he has a purpose. And and I think uh, it, it really, um, as we'll find out later, uh, really plays into the fact that it is a free will versus fate, that sort of uh, themes going on here. And there's a lot of things set up. You know, Father Paul comes to this town 
uh, miracles happen and uh, miracles great and small uh, from people no longer needing to use the glasses to read to making the lame walk. Who is he? Uh, what's the reason for these miracles? Is it God? Is it something else? It's it's really a, a mystery is set up and that's kind of where we find ourselves within the first uh, first couple episodes uh, of this of this limited series, and the the answers to all the questions uh, are are quite fascinating because, like I said, uh, book one, uh, the first episode is Genesis, and that's the beginning. That's kind of what we just went over. Uh, book two, Psalms, uh, is the second episode. Of course, Psalms means song, and the second episode ends with a. Uh, essentially a song of praise if you will and and this is going to be a, a little bit of a spoiler but they show it in the the trailer so it's not that big of a of a, a spoiler but lisa who's been paralyzed for for some years now um she walks and at the behest of father paul and and it really sets up a did he do this by what power did he do this uh, you know, he's already kind of set up as a, not a, not a, he doesn't seem malicious, but he does seem off. And that's one of the things that I think plays through this whole series is that you, you really don't know what he's all about. Uh, he's got, like I said, he's got his secrets. He's got a, an air about him that is awkward and off and, not off-putting, but you just you don't know what this guy's deal is. Pretty much what it boils down to. Of course, then we get to book three. That's the third episode, Proverbs, and of course they talk about this. And that Proverbs means wisdom, and we learn what happened to Monsignor Pruitt. I I remembered it being later in the show, but uh, but then again, it is only um, seven episodes, and. It, Episode three, we're almost halfway through this. So yeah, I guess it was about episode three, but Monsignor Pruitt uh, had an experience on his trip to the Holy Land. And uh, Monsignor Pruitt, when they show him, um, he's one of the characters that I'm like, they couldn't get a, a senior citizen aged actor to, to play this character. It looked like a younger guy in old man makeup. Now, the the smart thing that they did is they never really lingered on him. Uh, same with the Mildred character. She was another one where it's a younger actress playing a, a much, much older woman. Uh, and they never lingered too long. And I think the Mildred makeup, they probably lingered a little longer on her, but I think that was a little better uh, aging makeup. But uh, Monsignor Pruitt has this experience on the Damascus Road. And I, I'm, I'm not going to give away too much there because that is quite a, a spoiler. We'll talk about it at the end. Um, like I said, I'm going to you know, get to get to my final thoughts on this. And then we're going to talk about some spoiler material stuff. But we find out the secrets of Monsignor Pruitt. We gain that wisdom in episode four. Uh, book four, Lamentations. Of course, Lamentations uh, comes from the word lament. And uh, this is where the death begins. I, in my notes, I put, let the death begin. As uh, some characters die. 
And uh, it's some are not as pretty as others. And I, I, again, I don't want to get into to too much as, as far as who actually dies, because I want that for anybody who hasn't watched this, I want that to be a surprise. Like I said, we'll, we'll get into some spoilery stuff a little bit later, but book number five gospels, of course, gospel means good news. And, uh, father Paul reveals, uh, one of his big secrets to, to the congregation. Uh, there's another big reveal of somebody who we thought had died and they're not so dead. Um, if you're like me and you kind of figured out where this was going um, by this point, uh, it was no surprise that this character wasn't completely dead. And there's also news uh, on what's going on with Aaron uh, and her, what she goes through. Uh, towards the end of this and and it's kind of a, a situation where there's a scene with riley and aaron out on the boat and riley's dreams start to make a lot more sense and he he explains to aaron he he's figured out what's going on on crocodile island um what's causing these miracles and the not so uh, benign nature of these miracles. And, and then he, you know, Aaron, Aaron's pretty much says that, you know, you've brought me out here on this boat in the middle of the water, in the middle of nowhere, because, uh, she thinks he's going to do her harm. And he, he says to her, no, I brought you out here because I have no place. So I'll have no place else to go. And then, what happens next is probably one of the most, one of the more gut-wrenching scenes uh, I've seen because uh, the one thing I really liked about the show, uh, aside from the show itself, is one cool thing they would do is at the end of the final scene, when it cuts to credits, they leave the sound effects going. Uh Sharp Objects, uh, the HBO series with uh, Amy Adams, did that. Uh, I don't think they cut the black when they cut the credits, but they played the end credits and they just let the scene play out. Uh, whether it's just kind of, you know, panning out as the the camera just stays on this road and a car driving away and you hear all the sound effects going on in the background you know, residential area, what have you. Uh, they did a very similar thing with this, where uh, the camera would cut the black, you'd see the end credits, and you would you would hear all the sound effects still playing out from that last scene. And the sound effect that they let play out at the end of episode five is chilling and haunting and heartbreaking all at the same time. Uh, it really, you know, I just, my wife and I just sat there and, and watched it in silence uh, until it finally came to an end. And then we finally talked about the episode, but uh, good stuff uh, from a filmmaking standpoint, I thought. Uh, book number six, episode six, Acts of the Apostle, Apostles, I should say, where uh, Father Paul or 
we like I said, we we found out something about Father Paul, but uh, uh, Bev, uh, Wade, and Dolly, and Serge—they've all become his disciples, so to speak, and and they start acting on Father Paul's will to essentially save this community but not not in a way uh, not in the biblical sense and not in a uh, socio-economical sense that uh, that one might think uh, for this dying town but uh, they, they've got some very Jonesville plans in mind uh, so to speak um, it's a plan to convert uh, the inhabitants of of Crockett Island. And uh, I, I can't go into too much more detail than that without giving much away. But uh, this is, you know, episode six where, you know, business is picking up. And this is where, you know, really uh, one of the one of the big complaints I've heard about this uh, limited series, Midnight Mass, is that there's too much talking. Now, for me, uh, talking is what I do, whether it's been on the radio for the past uh, almost 30 years or talking on this podcast, talking is what I do. I don't mind talking. Uh, a lot of people complaining that it's long-winded. Uh, you're talking one of the kings of long-winded. But uh, it's, to me, I look at it, this is a limited series. They're playing the long game with this. Seven episodes. Um, and a lot of this series and a lot of this finale depend on setting up uh, the characters, setting up the stakes and the consequences, uh, developing the characters and the stories till we get to a fever pitch to where the finale plays out the way it does. And to me, I've always felt that any anything worth saying is worth taking the time to say it right. And that's one thing I felt that they did. You know, there may be a lot of dialogue in this, but all the dialogue means something. All the dialogue has weight. All the dialogue has relevance to the bigger picture and uh, setting up things that maybe you didn't realize uh, what they were going to be until a key piece of dialogue later on reveals uh, what was going on all along. And, uh, and that kind of leads us into book seven, episode seven, uh, Revelation, which uh, also means apocalypse. And that's what you get. You get a very apocalyptic episode, death, final battle, good versus evil, um, some force to face what they've done to others. Um but then you've got some characters who see the error of their ways. And then you've got some characters like Ed and Annie Flynn, Riley's parents, who uh, who do things because they're noble. And when they are the casualties of uh, what's going on through no fault of their own, they hold the, the dignity and the integrity to stay true to themselves to the very end. And to me, that was that was so powerful to see all the bloodshed and all the debauchery and all of the, the wickedness and the savagery uh, of some of these townspeople just 
just because they could, just because they had no control of their own, uh, you know, sense of right and wrong or their own urges, animalistic urges. But then you had characters like Annie and Ed who stayed true to who they were. And that, to me, that was a, a, a powerful message and maybe not necessarily a metaphor, but uh, uh, a great uh, representation of how everybody should act in in not just in the movie but in in life in general i i think that was a good role model a good thing to espouse to and and then we find that uh we find things play out to the end <laughs> without uh you know wicked gets punished but then again everyone gets punished it's it would be a nihilistic ending if it weren't for the fact that we do have a, a bright, small ray of hope. But with even within that hope, there is a question as to whether the evil is truly gone. And I, I like to think that, yeah, uh, evil was vanquished on that day. Uh, I don't see physically how it could go any other way. But, you know... Mike Flanagan, very smart of him, left left it open just enough, just enough to make you wonder, did this actually happen? We didn't see it. And that's always been a, a thing of mine with movies and television. Uh, if you don't see something die, especially the bad guy, uh, it didn't happen. Now that's you know that's not a hard and fast rule, as in this case. I, I don't think, you know, I don't think the evil got away, but I can't be one hundred percent sure. And and I think that really kind of is a a, a metaphor. I was uh, reading um, an interview with uh, Mike Flanagan again the other day, and uh, he was talking about this in in a roundabout way I, I can't read the complete quote uh word for word because it is going to give away uh some things and once we kind of get into spoiler territory um then maybe I'll, I'll i'll divulge a little more maybe that's what i'll lead off with uh <laughs> when we when we kind of get into the more spoiler territory but uh there's a there's a entity in this movie that uh he told Den of Geek, it represents fundamentalism and fanaticism. That's never going away. You might chase it away from your community for a minute. You might send it off into the sunset and hope that that corrupting ideology will disappear, but it won't. And you should never show this entity that we're talking about die for that reason. Which I thought was a was, a, was an interesting way to uh, to go about uh, telling the end of this story because it, you know he's talking about corruption and he's talking about uh, I think one of the main themes fanaticism uh, there's a lot of themes going on in this uh, limited series uh, traditions and rituals of Catholicism taken literally can sound like vampirism um, 
I was reading uh, another article where Mike Flanagan was talking about how uh, the idea for this came from when he was a little kid. And he's sitting in church, and they're getting ready to take communion. And he said to his parents, so if we're drinking blood and eating flesh to stay alive forever, aren't we vampires? (laughs) Apparently his parents were not as, as, uh, didn't find that as amusing as I do. But uh, he went on to say that uh, the thing about Catholicism isn't that the bread and wine represent the blood or the body and blood of Christ or stand in for the body and blood of Christ. Uh, it's that they physically transform into flesh and blood supernaturally at the altar. And, and that's how you achieve eternal life. The fact that this hasn't been explicitly linked to vampirism surprises me. He says, you're dealing with a mythology that is steeped in blood ritual and resurrection, which, uh, you know, I, I never thought of that before. Maybe, maybe it's crossed my mind, but, uh, but I never, I never thought, uh, you know, that that would make such a fantastic movie slash limited series to, to link the two, you know, vampirism and, and Catholicism. And uh, that to me was a, a fantastic theme playing off the, um, off of those two things and, and how closely linked they can be. If you, if you don't blur the lines, uh, another one of the big themes was uh, the dangers of fanaticism and, uh, and how religion can you be used? You know, you, you have good people that are people of faith and, and, and the salt of the earth types, but all it takes is the right person, the right amount of charisma saying the wrong things or twisting things in the right way or wrong way as the case may be to, to turn somebody who is just a good person of faith into somebody that will kill for that faith. Um, kill, you know, without remorse and without rhyme or reason. And, and I think, you know, akin to that, uh, I think it also played off the, the theme that how easy it is. Faith can turn into a cult-like, uh, cult-like thing. Uh, misguided faith can, can turn, um, good people into a cult, uh, with just, you know, like I said, the, the right smile, the right charisma, the right words from the right mouth. And I think it played a lot into that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on in this. Uh, addiction is a huge theme in this limited series. Of course, Mike Flanagan, um, no stranger to addiction. Um, he's, he's dealt with addiction. I believe, you know, he's been sober for, uh, for uh, a few years now, but, uh, he's, he's been no stranger to addiction. And I think that really showed through in the Riley character. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of the, um, the things he's gone through as far as maybe not the, the guilt of murdering somebody, but the guilt that, uh, addiction and, and what you do to the people you love when you suffer from addiction. I, I think a lot of that showed through, in, in the Riley character, and, and maybe even in to some degree in the, the Joe Colley character. Uh, there's a lot of guilt in this in this limited series. A lot of people harboring a lot of guilt, whether it's uh, Riley, whether it's his father. There's a fantastic scene between Henry Thomas and Zach Guilford. Uh, they're out on the boat, 
and Henry Thomas's character, Ed Flynn, has kind of um, experienced a, a little bit of a miracle of his own. And I, I don't know whether he's thinking more clearly, but he has this heart-to-heart with with Riley about how um, how he he never really was uh, the father he he needed to be to Riley because you know he thought you know it, it's it's that small town mentality. He's a fisherman. He thought Riley should be a fisherman like him. My dad is a tool and die maker by trade. And I know when I was uh, getting out of high school and getting ready to go into college, he thought, you know, I should I should not go to college. I should go and get a job at a tool shop and learn to trade. And I wanted to go to college so I could study broadcasting, so I could be on the radio or TV or whatever. Um and he he didn't understand why I didn't want. I, I don't think my dad understood at the time. Maybe he still doesn't to some degree, but I, I think he does now. And he, he's proud of me, and, and and there's nothing wrong there. But uh, you know, I think at the time he just doesn't understand why I didn't want to do what he did. And I think that's uh, the case you have here with Ed Flynn, uh, that character. He didn't understand why his son didn't want to to follow in the family business, so to speak. Uh, probably felt like he wasn't good enough. If that wasn't good enough, fishing, becoming a fisherman wasn't good enough, then that meant he wasn't good enough to his son. And and he kind of opens up about that and, and why uh, I, I think he harbored some resentment to, towards Riley because of that. Um, and, and in so, uh, probably wasn't the best father he could be. Because Riley needed somebody that could understand him and support him when he wanted to go off to, to New York City to, you know, you know, do the venture capital thing. And but they have a great heart to heart and they they air their grievances, you know, not grievances, but they they air their guilt and and uh, come away stronger. Uh, as a father and son and it was just a really powerful scene and really showed why Henry Thomas I mean he is a character or an actor that I love to see show up in, in movies especially the stuff that that uh, Mike Flanagan puts out there because one his characters always have such heart and Henry Thomas just brings it when it comes to these characters that uh that Mike Flanagan writes and uh, in general uh, Henry Thomas brings it and uh, just an actor. I, I love seeing him show up in things, especially as of late and hope to see more of him in, in future projects uh, because he always adds such a, a great um, sensitivity. Like this character is tough, but he has a sensitivity that you can tell and, uh, and that's all Henry Thomas, I think. I mean, it's it's some of the writing, but it's a lot of Henry Thomas. But at any rate, uh, there's a lot of guilt in this uh, as far as themes go. And uh, God and faith are, are at the the crux, I think, of, of this whole limited series. Um, you know, is there a God versus isn't there a God? Um, faith versus misguided faith. Uh, faith versus fanaticism and, and where do you draw the line um, you know the the hypocrisy of faith you know we've got a lot of people out there 
uh, proclaiming Jesus with their mouth and denying him by their by their actions. And you know, a lot of a lot of Christians out there, people claiming to be Christians, that are so full of hate in their heart, and so full of racism, and so full of bigotry that uh, it, it's a wonder why people don't believe in God or or don't believe in in Jesus or the church or or those sort of things, uh, which I, I think it was really uh, important part of this whole limited series um the fact that that faith played uh such a prominent role i was reading an interesting article where they're kind of talking about mike flanagan uh said that they really took care to uh to make sure everything was right everything the priest was doing um and 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 make sure they represented uh, Catholicism and, and and faith in general and Christianity in general uh, very well. But uh, I found an in, this quote interesting from Mike Flanagan. He says, we were very careful to make sure that this show was an open invitation to people of any belief system. Its core values, its sense are very Christian. Empathy, kindness, concern for your fellow man. It celebrates our capacity for belief and our capacity for faith. And and that's one of the things that uh, that I really liked about this because, you know, you had um, so many people of faith. You, you did have the Bev Keens. You do have the Father Pauls who uh, have a misguided faith and are doing bad things with the right reasons at heart um then you have you know the the salt of the earth people 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 like annie and ed flynn who are are just good people and and their faith is a cornerstone of that you have characters like sheriff hassan who who's not even christian he's a he's a devout muslim uh and he you know his faith you know keeps him from from being you know letting that uh hatred that his character experienced um that racism that he experienced kept him from being bitter and he tries to be uh, uh, very open you know he's a he's a muslim in a predominantly catholic community uh, and yet there's no you know he he doesn't hold any hate in anyone's heart even for the people that are horrible to him like Bev Keen uh you know it's 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 about the goodness of what faith can bring to people i mean it's also you know this this represents uh all the horrible things that faith can bring the fanaticism if if in the wrong hands if that faith is misguided or or put in the wrong place and it also, you know, like I said, it, it played a lot uh, on hypocrisy. The Bev Keens who, you know, sits there and and is so holier than thou and so judgmental and so backstabbing and backbiting and 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 proclaims Lord, Lord with her mouth. That's it just, you know, that's the obvious bit of hypocrisy. Sheriff Hassan was a it shows a little bit of hypocrisy on his side because it, you know there are all these miracles going on um throughout this community and he wants to see what it's all about 
and wants to go to church. He wants to go to Mass. Uh, Ali uh, even is found with a Bible, and Sheriff Hassan shows up at, I guess it's sort of a de facto school board meeting, or, or parents just, you know, talking with teachers, but at any rate, he's talking about how, you know, he believes in Jesus. He believes in Jesus as a prophet, and he knows all about the Bible. He's read the Bible, and he encourages his son to to explore and, and learn about Jesus and, and learn about, you know, Christianity. But then in his own home, when his son expresses the want to, to go to church, um, then he he's like, no, I don't want you to. Uh, which, you know, there again, you know, you sit there and proclaim with your mouth that you are all these things, uh, that you're not afraid of Christianity. You, you know, you are very open-minded and open to all this, that, and the other. And then he refuses his son to go to church. Well, his son ends up going to church and, and it all plays out the way it plays out. But, but, you know, it's an understandable hypocrisy. You know, every father, or mother wants their child to to follow in the example that they've set and when they don't i'm sure i'm not a parent so i don't know but uh but i do have parents and i was the kind of child that uh didn't didn't go along with the plans that they thought they had for me and i'm sure as a parent when your child doesn't want to follow the example you set you feel like maybe maybe i didn't do this right maybe i'm maybe i'm doing this wrong maybe i failed my child and and i'm sure that's probably what he felt uh is that you know his son he's afraid his son doesn't want to be a muslim anymore and and that's what his you know that's what he that's his identity is is a muslim and that's where his faith is right now and and the mother that that died of cancer that's no longer in the picture that is what she uh brought to the family he was not a religious person until she came into his life and if the son is rejecting islam then he's rejecting his father and mother and 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 i'm sure that's got to weigh heavy on a parent And, and and also he feels very much alone in this community as a Muslim in an all Catholic community, as a, a brown skinned man in a predominantly white community, he he's got to feel alone. And the only one he has, the only one he can count on is his son uh, to feel like he's being abandoned by his son probably has, uh, has a lot to do with, uh, his reaction to not wanting his his son to to go to this church to be a part of uh, this to learn you know more about Christianity or what what's going on with these miracles. So the, in, in one aspect, he got the irrational hypocrisy from from people like Bev Keen, uh, who who's hypocritical in her faith because she thinks she's better than everyone else. Uh, whereas you have uh, Sheriff Hassan, who is hypocritical in his faith. But again, much like a lot of the uh, misguided faith, you know, it's it's based on all the right intentions. It's not a malicious, it's not a malevolent uh, or malevolent uh, hypocrisy. Uh, he doesn't mean his son harm by it. He just is feeling a lot of doubt and insecurity and and alone.
ness, if that's a word. Um, and, and it kind of plays into a lot of the a lot of the things that Mike Flanagan set up at the beginning of this limited series, where uh, you know the isolation uh, of this community, the isolation of this island, the isolation of Riley, and and a lot of these people that are suffering in in this community it, it kind of plays a lot into into that and uh it was it was quite a powerful um quite a powerful limited series uh for my money uh even down to like you know some of the performances like uh robert longstreet like i said who played joe collie just a masterful job one of my favorite scenes uh, actually, a couple of my favorite scenes. Uh, he's got a dog. He's the town drunk. He's always in trouble. Uh, the only one that there's very few people that actually treat him decent. Sheriff Hassan uh, treats him decently, uh, even though they he you know he kind of rib each other about Kali uh, uh, being a drunk and Hassan being a, a Muslim. Uh, they kind of joke back and forth, but uh, Joe Kali has this dog. And there's this big church picnic that's going on. And you see somebody put down a hot dog and the dog keeps uh, comes over and eats it. Next thing you know, the dog's coughing up blood and dies. Uh, it's, it's implied that Bev Keen, who, because of something that's happened before, uh, has a bunch of rat poison uh, secured... Um, I don't know whether it's at the church or at the school or this rec center that she built, but uh, she has all this rat poison that she said she's put around town for for reasons that uh, uh, aren't vastly important, but are are part of the storyline. And oh, he must have gotten into that. Well, you know, somebody put a hot dog down there for the dog to eat. Uh, very well could have been her, and that hot dog very well could have been laced with uh, the rat poison, but. Uh, the performance that Longstreet gives, uh, the grief of this dog dying, like his only friend, his only companion, uh, just was so gut-wrenching. I was gutted after that. And then there was a scene later where uh, Liza, or Lisa, she's, uh, you know, she's healed from that bullet wound. Joe Joe Colley uh, was just out, sh- probably drunk and shooting his gun, and one of the stray bullets struck her, Lisa, in the back, and she was paralyzed. Well, through this miracle from pa- Father Paul, and in the first of many miracles going on here at this uh, community, she can walk, and she goes to confront him, and she gives such a... Uh, fantastic performance and she talks about how she has all these reasons to hate him and hate him for what he did to her paralyzing her and and that she doesn't she just feels sorry for him because he lives in the hell that she wished for him the shithole that she wished for him and uh uh Honora Seymour. I hope I'm pronouncing her first name right, but she just gives a, a fantastic performance there, and it, it was such a performance that I, I don't, I haven't seen. You know, I'm not aware of seeing her in much, but I'm excited to see more from her, 
uh, in the future because she just uh, did a great job. And, and Robert Longstreet uh, was giving uh, an award-winning performance right back to her just in his reactions to to what she was telling him and the heartbreak uh, and the guilt and and all of these emotions that were this character had welling up inside uh, played out there. He played it in, in his face and in, in just the face. And it was just a, a fantastic scene uh, between the two of them who didn't really have much. I mean, that's pretty much the only scene they had together. And, uh, and for them to have uh, such chemistry uh, with just that one scene was, was pretty powerful stuff. And then there's a, another scene I'll mention before we kind of wrap up things uh, in the unspoilery section of the podcast. But uh, there's a scene between uh, Aaron and Riley where Kate Siegel and, uh, uh, and Zach Guilford are kind of sitting around just... It was one of those scenes, like I said, there's a lot of dialogue. And this is just one of those purely dialogue scenes where they're talking about death and what happens to you when you die. And his is so nihilistic and and so sad and so because he doesn't believe in God anymore. After after the accident where he took that girl's life, he doesn't believe in God anymore. He believes you die and you just, you know, you may have some uh, synapses firing and a flash of memories, but you're dead and you're gone, fade to black. She has a more hopeful uh, vision of dying and that you, she'll be in heaven and she'll see her loved ones and it's very hopeful. And, and to see... Um, how their their visions of what it's like when you die are subverted. Uh, hopefully that's not too spoilery. We'll get into it a little more coming up uh, in the spoiler section. It was just uh, it, it was a it was a great great way to uh, pay off that scene, and, and I quite enjoyed it. So that's that's pretty much. Uh, the non-spoilery section of the podcast on Midnight Mass. Uh, I, for one, loved this movie, uh, this limited series, I should say. And uh, hopefully, if you haven't watched this, you do watch it because uh, it's really worth it. Um, you know, like I said, it is not your typical action-filled jump scares horror this is patience this is old school uh horror filmmaking where you know you gotta have a little patience you gotta build character you gotta build consequences and the stakes but it all pays off in the end so horrifically and so beautifully so i encourage everyone to to watch this uh, limited series on netflix uh, mike flanagan's midnight mass now we are going to get into some spoiler territory. I'm going to try not to be too much longer, but uh, I do want to talk about some some spoilery things that uh, uh, just uh, were things that I loved about this that I was so so much enjoyed <laughs> with this with this movie or limited series. I keep calling it a movie. It plays like just a really long movie. But uh, if you don't want spoilers, 
then we'll see you next time. But, uh, but if you enjoy spoilers or you've watched the movie and just want to get my take on a few things, uh, definitely stay right where you're at. And we're going to get into that right now. Of course, the biggest spoiler <laughs> of this movie is that, or, or limited series, I should say, is that Father Paul is, in fact, Monsignor Pruitt. And the episode in the Holy Land where he comes across the angel. He calls it an angel, but it is this big winged vampire thing. Was uh, that that vampire design was so chilling? Uh, I, the long fingers and the wings, and just the way it launched at you, and then it it, it suckled at at the at people's necks. Uh, like a like a cat in a bowl of sauce or a sauce or a milk it was just uh it was some scary stuff and uh and one of the things that uh i thought was was really cool is that they really doubled down on the religious iconography with the, you know we we talked about how uh you know they likened uh communion to being a vampire and to to have this this vampiric creature and for father uh or monsignor pruitt to liken it to an angel and that is really what sets him on this quest to to put the the blood of this of this creature into the blood of the communion sacraments and to to have everybody that takes communion taking in this vampire blood and and in typical vampire uh mythology and lore if you die with vampire blood in your veins then you will rise again as a vampire Uh, and until then you're going to have some of these miracles like lisa and ann and ed flynn and a lot of these other characters that's that uh they have ailments that are gone ed's bad back is gone uh annie doesn't need her glasses everybody starts to look a little younger and that was one of the things i I wondered at the beginning of this why so many actors had old person makeup on old person prosthetics on uh you know uh zach guilford is only about what like 12 years younger give or take uh younger than than henry thomas and i was like well henry thomas is not old enough to be his father but they you know put some graying in the mustache and gave him a little old man makeup and uh and he looked the part but and then some of the characters like uh hamish linklater and uh uh what's her name alex esso who played uh, Mildred? Uh, I mean, they were obvious, you know. When when Hamish Linklater was was playing uh, Monsignor Pruitt, I mean, it looked like it looked like old person makeup, and I was like, why did they not find older actors and actresses to play these characters? But it all made sense because as Father or Monsignor Pruitt uh, becomes a vampire. Uh, or at least he has the vampire blood in his system. Uh, he hasn't died yet when he comes back to uh, Crockett Island. But when he has the, uh, the vampire blood, he, he becomes younger, uh, back to himself in his prime. He starts feeding the blood, uh, giving communion to uh, Mildred Gunning, a uh, dementia patient, who he 
uh, we find out had a fling with back in the day. There again, another big spoiler. Um, she starts to become young again. And we find out that Sarah is actually uh, Monsignor Pruitt's daughter. And it was an interesting scene because uh, they're at this picture, picnic, the picnic where Joe Colley's dog is, is killed. But uh, it's kind of implied that Sarah Gunning is a lesbian. And she's sitting there talking with this, uh, this woman who it's implied kind of that that's her girlfriend. And, and Annabeth Gish as Sarah Gunning it talks about how, uh, Father Paul Hill is staring at her uh, just like Monsignor Pruitt used to, and that oh, he must not approve of her uh, lifestyle like Monsignor Pruitt didn't approve of her lifestyle. And it's funny because once you find out that was her, uh, his daughter, it wasn't that Monsignor Pruitt as an old man or you know him as Father Paul you know, reversed age serum. Uh, it wasn't that they didn't approve. That was his daughter that he never had a relationship. And it was him longing, uh, you know, looking at her longingly because, you know, it's his daughter that he hasn't had a relationship with. And I thought that was kind of an interesting twist where you, you're set up to believe this is going down one way. And just with a little bit of a twist in the narrative, uh, you find out that that scene plays totally different after the fact. But, uh, and that's that's the whole thing of the story, is that everybody is dosed with this vampire blood, and then they're going to try and do this uh, Jonesville, Jim Jones sort of, instead of drinking Kool-Aid, everybody's drinking the rat poison. And, uh, and the one thing that uh, I, I didn't understand... And, and maybe maybe I missed something, but Father Paul, after he somebody has a miracle happen to him, he starts to faint and pass out. And I wasn't sure if that was meant to mean that he was using his blood to to dose the wine, the communion wine, and he was just kind of running, you know, a little anemic, or or what that was all about. And then when he dies, he dies in the in the church, and I wasn't one hundred percent sure he died in the same way the dog died. So I'm guessing, and, and the way people die later, which we'll talk about, uh, but he dies puking up blood essentially, and it was led to believe that Bev, I, I don't know whether she dosed him with rat poison, or or if they planned that, and he did it himself but it wasn't quite clear there as to what made him die or why who at whose hand it was was it intentional was it bev uh doing some sort of test to see if he would rise again i don't know see what kind of miracles were going to happen uh that's not 100 percent clear but what is clear is that they do try to do this uh jim jones they reveal to the congregation that uh Father Paul is Monsignor Pruitt, and they start handing out uh, cups of rat poison. <laughs> and it was so uh, 
you know, it played a lot into the themes of fanaticism and how these rational uh, people would take this die to become a vampire. I mean, the stakes are laid out, and and I don't think people, you know, much like any any sort of cult or fanaticism, I don't think people understand the complete consequences before they find themselves in way too deep. And, and people do find themselves deep. But, uh, you know, everybody's kind of turning into vampires and those that don't are being fed on. Uh, I really love the scene where Henry Thomas sacrifices himself. And then later, Annie sacrifices herself uh, before essentially uh, telling Beverly she's a bitch, <laughs> Bev Keen, that she's not a good person. And uh, there's just a, a lot of uh, things that play into their nobility after they've turned into vampires. They've had the vampire blood in them, so once they're killed, they become vampires, but they, they keep their dignity. And I can't remember. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Henry Thomas who said it. It's like, he's hungry for blood, but he he doesn't have to, to satiate that hunger. And I think, you know, maybe that was Mike Flanagan uh, talking about addiction some of the addiction he's gone through, uh, the recovery from that addiction. Um, but it really was a, a great, great scene to see them walking around and just uh, there towards the end when they're singing the hymn as the sun's about to rise uh, and the dignity. I, I, I keep using the word dignity, but it's just so, it's so touching and it's so, you know, it's the kind of thing we should all aspire to, to, to be able to have that sort of restraint to do the right thing, uh, no matter what the cost is. Uh, I, I think that's just, it, it was a, it was a lovely um, bit of acting and a bit of writing and scenes that, that we saw play out that, that I really enjoyed. And, and speaking of that kind of, you know, I'm kind of bouncing around all, all over the place because I didn't really have a, a clear plan for this uh, spoilery section. But uh, Riley, when he rode out on the boat with Aaron and and he's telling her what is up with Father Paul, uh, he gets attacked by the main, the big winged vampire, the angel, if you will, and turned into a vampire. And he... He drinks blood, but it's blood that's been given to him, cut from Sturge's arm. And so he hasn't killed anyone uh, and doesn't want to kill anyone. He's already murdered somebody, and he doesn't want to do this again. He knows the price you pay for doing that and the torment and the, the hauntedness that comes with murder. And he doesn't want to do that. And he takes her out there and realizes uh, that him on the boat facing the sunset and he later has a dream where she's in the boat with him and and he realizes that was his purpose and that he needed to tell her and he was going to end it before maybe he did cave into those addictions those those hunger pangs that uh that called for blood and and made him do something that he didn't want to do um it was just such a, a heartbreaking scene, uh, a beautifully horrific scene, if you will, and and just kind of uh, really played a lot into, you know, he's had these dreams. Uh, was this all happenstance or did things happen for a reason? Uh, you know, you'd hate to think that, you know, he murdered somebody in a DUI accident for a reason. But it happened, and he went to jail, and he came home. And if he hadn't 
Uh, he wouldn't have put two and two together. He wouldn't have found out what was going on with uh, Father Paul and this vampire and Bev Keen and all these people. He wouldn't have been there to find that out and and set the wheels in motion to stop it. Because at the end of the day, when, when Bev Keen's burning all the houses, so all the vampires have to come to her rec center and... She can essentially have control as to who goes in and who leaves. And then, you know, the survivors, um, Aaron and Sarah, Sheriff Hassan, um, uh, Warren and Lisa, um, they all burn the boats so they can't get off the island after it's all said and done. And there's no place, uh, you know, and, and Aaron, you know, uh, burns down the rec center. And there's no place for anyone to go. There's no shelter. And everybody's faced with that realization that uh, they're all vampires and the sun's coming up and they're all going to die. And to see some of them face it with uh, dignity, like Annie and Ed, uh, like Father Paul slash Monsignor Pruitt, who understood the error of his ways. Uh, that was the nice thing. You know, he wasn't uh, a totally antagonistic character. He wasn't in totally a a bad guy. He, he had some nuance to him. And uh, I, was, I was really interested by a, a quote from Hamish Linklater where he said, this guy is trying to do the right thing uh, all the way through it as far as his understanding of what the right thing is. Uh, he thinks he's helping these people. He thinks he's saving these people. He thinks this is an angel. He doesn't, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how anyone could look at that monster and think it was an angel, but he, he felt like he was doing the right thing. And when he realized he was wrong, he he repented and he still paid the prices for his sin, but he 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 died with with a, a an ounce of of dignity and a, an ounce of redemption. You had Bev Keen, who's at the last chance. She she knows she's gonna die. Uh, she doesn't doesn't seem unrepentant, but she doesn't seem repentant. She see you see her trying to dig in the sand to to bury herself and to escape her her judgment. And you know, in a biblical sense, I, I imagine that's how a lot of people are gonna be on the the day of judgment if you believe in that, but, uh, but it was all very, uh, very well played. And the hymn that everybody starts singing at, at first, I thought, Oh, this is going to kind of be hokey, but it just, it, it really was a, uh, a fitting end to this. And of course the, the angel, this creature, this vampire, this winged creature, um, at one point, uh, Aaron has a final showdown with it and it's sucking her dry. And as it's sucking her dry, she's puncturing holes into its wings with a knife that she has on her. And it just doesn't, it's been established that once this thing is feeding, it's locked in, doesn't care, doesn't feel anything else. And, and, and we see it start to fly away, but it's very shaky flight and Warren and Lisa, who are finally, they're the only ones that get away. They're out on the water in this rowboat and or this canoe, and they see the creature flying off. Sun's about to rise. It's 30 miles to the mainland, and they don't think it can make it. 
And I like to think that it doesn't. But like I said earlier, you know, Mike Flanagan left it kind of open-ended to make you wonder if this corruption, if this evil actually did meet its end or or if it didn't. And and that's kind of that's kind of life in general. And uh, and I thought that was a great way to to end it. And of course, the last thing I'll really talk about, we kind of alluded to this earlier about the the scene between Riley and Aaron, where they're talking about uh, what it's going to be like when they die. Riley has the very nihilistic, you know, everything blinks out and you're done. Aaron feels that you're going to uh, meet your, your loved ones in heaven. And it's kind of a, a great scene when when they both die. Both characters die separately. But Riley dies in the boat when he has Aaron out on the water and the sun comes up and he has no place to go. And you see a scene where all of a sudden everything's light, uh, Aaron's gone, and Riley has a hand held out to him. And it is the image of the girl he, he murdered in the DUI accident. And she doesn't have any glass, and she's not all dirty and bloody and dead. Uh, it's her as she should be in a very glowing, angelic form. Uh, and she holds out her hand to him kind of welcoming him and and taking ushering him into heaven and it's it's a sign of forgiveness it's a sign of of redemption you know he's he's paid for his sins and it kind of subverted what he thought was going to happen when he died Aaron was was again it subverted how she thought she things were going to be when she died she thought she was going to be up ushered into heaven and meet her her family members that have gone on before her she has a miscarriage uh, because of the blood, um, the vampire blood in her body, they see, you know, uh, babies and fetus are, are like a foreign object in the body, and the body has um, fail-safes to keep the body from attacking it, but the vampire blood obviously uh, trumped all that, and she, the baby was gone. Uh, and she felt a lot of grief and guilt survivor's guilt maybe even to to an extent um because of that and she thought she was going to meet her baby and her her father in heaven and she didn't Uh, well i mean it it doesn't play out that she does we don't see that but she has a scene where she's talking about how she uh feels a connection to the earth and and essentially feeling like her atoms are going to go into the earth and then all of a sudden uh, be a part of everything else and then eventually make uh, their way back to the stars from where, you know, a lot of people think uh, all matter comes from anyway. And it's just a very uh, surreal and existential uh, sort of death for her, which kind of subverted what she thought. Now, we don't know. We we don't see where she goes after that. Maybe she did uh, meet her family in heaven, but I just thought it was a great way to to set up the subversion of of how they thought their, their own deaths were going to be. And uh, I think it played really well. So I think that's everything spoiler I wanted to talk about. Uh, I may have missed a couple things, but we've talked about Midnight Mass for quite some time. Uh, if you haven't watched it, I encourage you to watch it. If you sat through my spoilers and and you're like, oh, I don't need to watch it. No, you really do. Because uh, anything I say will not do this, this whole thing justice. Because uh, Midnight Mass was just such a fantastic 
Uh, fantastic characters. Uh, like I said in the beginning, uh, Mike Flanagan does a great job with world building, much like Stephen King, character building. And there is just so much to unpack in this. There's so many themes going on and, and there's so much of it that can be relatable to what's going on today in the world and how, you know, if we just show each other a little more uh, of those, you know, stereotypical uh, Christian values of empathy and kindness and putting other people before yourself and those those basic tenets of, of Christianity and, and so many faiths, uh, if we just treated each other like that, uh, the world would be such a better place. And uh, I'm going to leave with this, this one uh, comment. Uh, Annabeth Gish uh, was talking about the series and she said, there's a requirement for deep listening and attention. She says, I think there's a real availability for understanding about what's happening in our world right now. It's very timely. So I hope people receive that. I think there's something very special about this project. And, and I, I have to agree with her. Uh, there's so many special things about uh, Midnight Mass. It's not just a horror story. It's, it's love stories. It's stories about redemption. It's stories about uh, addiction and guilt and, and faith and, and misguided faith. And there's just so much going on. And it's worth the time it is going to take to sit through uh, the dialogue that is necessary to to set up these characters to set up this story and to set up what is a fantastically horrific and bloody and monstrous ending uh I, i've talked a lot about all the themes and all the acting and all the beautiful things about this but the the horror of this both real and supernatural is is something that cannot be underscored enough it cannot be emphasized enough. Uh, the scary bits are are not few and far between, but they're layered and they're nuanced. And, you know, there are so many things in this movie, horror-wise, that are so subtle, but have such impact. And it all leads up to the crescendo of that final episode. When the, the horror that we've been seeing play out on a, a smaller level uh, gets magnified by a thousand. And yeah, it's like, you know, having a candle versus the blazing light of the sun. Uh, that's where we go horror-wise from episode one to episode seven. And I think everyone should, should check it out. Uh, I can't wait to watch it again. And uh, hopefully if you've watched it, you'll be watching it again to maybe see some of the things maybe I pointed out that you maybe didn't uh, recognize or, or you want to look over it again and say, I think you missed something. And uh, I, of course, I would love to hear about that as well. So uh, I encourage everyone to check it out. Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass on Netflix right now. Uh, it is a masterpiece of, of limited series horror that uh, I can't, it makes me really excited about what Mike Flanagan has uh, in store for us in the future. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in and listening. Uh, please check out our Facebook page, Odds Bodkins Curiosity Shop on Facebook. Uh, leave a review, uh, five star, 
whether you're listening it on uh, you know podcast.com, uh, Spotify, iTunes, Google, whatever you're listening to this on, please leave a review and uh, be kind, but uh, please leave a review. And uh, like I said, check out our Facebook page to stay on top of all that's going on in the world of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy. So until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!